Welcome to the Air War in Europe. A brief bit of housekeeping. If you have a question or suggestion, if I mispronounce a name or misstate a date, or if you have a story you think I should tell, send an email to airwareurope at gmail.com. You can also follow along on Twitter at Air War in Europe. In early July this year, my dad's siblings and their families got together for a reunion, and I had several conversations with my dad and uncle about my grandfather's experiences in the war. When I was a kid, my dad was in the army and we were stationed in Germany. My dad told me that his parents came to visit us, and my folks showed them around Western Europe. At some point, my dad suggested a trip to Austria to visit Vienna. My grandfather vehemently refused to go. When my dad pressed him, Grandpa said he just couldn't go there. His memories from the war of missions to Vienna were something he didn't want to dredge up by visiting the place. They went to Norway instead. The target for the 464th Bomb Group on July 26, 1944, was the Zvolfoxing Aerodrome, nine miles south of Vienna. From the diary of Jerome Lorry, the radio operator of my grandfather's crew. This mission was to one of the worst targets of the 15th Air Force. Anything near Vienna is rough, and it was. They had about 170 guns. We were really broken in on this raid. The flak was heavy, intense, and plenty accurate. And boy, did they set up a barrage. We had our main hydraulic line shot out, which made our hydraulic system inoperative. This controls the landing gear, flaps, bomb bay doors, brakes. It was lucky we had some extra hydraulic fluid on board, and the engineer was able to patch up the hole pretty good. We were sprayed from head to foot with hydraulic fluid, as was the whole ship. We really sweated the landing. We were in the flak area for 22 minutes. They were the 22 longest minutes I ever spent. There were four flak bursts that came so darn close I thought, sure, our number was up. Our escort was good, and no fighters were encountered. I hope they all aren't this rough. Nose turret gunner George Kroll recalled, Today we really saw the action. We bombed Vienna, Austria, the Zvolfoxing Aerodrome. We ran into heavy, intense, and extremely accurate flak. Boy, did I sweat. Our hydraulic system was shot out, and pieces of flak hit my turret. Number three engine was feathered. Made it through, and we were happy. And from my grandfather's diary, the next target we hit was the Zvolfoxing Aerodrome, about nine miles south of Vienna, Austria. This target was right in what is known as Flak Alley, and I'm not kidding. Our primary objective was to knock out enemy installations and aircraft on the ground. This plant assembled ME-109s. Our bomb load was 100-pound fragmentation bombs. Briefing came first as usual. The number of flat guns was astonishing. When the intelligence officer said intense, accurate flak, he wasn't kidding. Our squadron was to get off at 725, and we did just that. We rendezvoused with group and wing and proceeded on our way. We headed out over the Adriatic Sea and then over Yugoslavia. About 10.10, we saw the first of our escort of about 50 P-51s. 
They are a beautiful sight to see over enemy territory. Just after that, we saw a ship going down in flames. It wasn't a bomber, but a fighter. However, we were too far away to see who it was. For quite a while before we arrived at our target, we were an enemy flak. This time, we were as lucky as the first time. Flak came through the fuselage and cut the main hydraulic line. We lost all our hydraulic fluid while I endeavored to fix it. I finally managed to get the line crimped enough so that it would hold a little while. I did this with no tools except the crash axe and a hydraulic grip. When I got the pipes crimped, I filled the reservoir with some fluid, just enough to be able to lower the flaps with the emergency system. When we reached the field, we were the last to land because we didn't know if we had brakes or not. I had to crank the main landing gear down by hand and kick out the nose wheel. The landing was a butte. The brakes held. We were home. We landed at 1435. Seven hours and ten minutes of rugged flying. This was their second mission. My guess is that this is the incident that Wally Roberts related at the reunion in Las Vegas. My granddad doesn't mention using any special equipment to fix the hydraulics, but as his later diary entries don't mention a hydraulic leak as substantial as this, I think that there was a condom wrapped around the hydraulic line when they landed at Pantanella. My grandfather trained for combat in the B-24 with a crew of nine men. As I mentioned in episode one, the B-24 was usually crewed by ten. The command pilot of his original crew had been through the training before and he was very knowledgeable about the systems of the plane. My granddad said he learned a lot from that pilot. However knowledgeable he was, he had an aversion to flying in tight formation. In World War II, American heavy bombers relied on the massed fire of their gun positions as defense against enemy fighters. The B-24 was armed with 10 50 caliber machine guns. In case you don't already know, the caliber of a gun is the width of the bullet, expressed in decimal fractions of an inch. A 30 caliber is 0.3 inches, a 22, 0.22, etc. Thus, a 50 caliber bullet is half an inch in diameter. Bombers flew in tight formations, with very specific positioning, so that the combined firepower of their guns gave mutual protection to all the planes in the formation. Planes that weren't tucked in tight or got separated from the formation were easier targets for enemy fighters, and experience had proven that stragglers were not long for the world. Just before they were about to be shipped overseas, my grandfather and several other members of his training crew went to the squadron commander and requested that their crew be broken up. They refused to fly in combat with a pilot who would not fly position in formation. Two of the officers said they would resign their commissions if they were not reassigned. The crew was broken up. Five of them were placed on other crews. Grandpa was assigned to one whose engineer had been sent home on emergency leave. Of those five men who flew in combat, only my grandfather lived through it. The man he replaced was later assigned to the 465th Bomb Group, who were based on the other side of the runways, across from the 464th at Pantanella. He was also killed in combat. Through the late summer of 1942, 
The 8th Bomber Command, later renamed the 8th Air Force, continued to build up strength as new bomber and fighter groups began to arrive in England. They flew routes from the U.S. that took them from Maine to Newfoundland, Greenland, Iceland, Northern Ireland, and finally to their bases in East Anglia, chosen for its large open spaces and relatively flat terrain close enough to the continent to allow for deep penetration into Axis airspace. The crossing was not without danger. More than one crew vanished without a trace into the cloudy skies over the North Atlantic. Some who got lost were fortunate enough to live to tell and sometimes laugh about it. The crew of My Gal Sal, piloted by Lieutenant Ralph Stinson, wandered through heavy clouds over Greenland looking for Bluey 8, a waypoint airfield north of the Arctic Circle. Critically low on fuel, Stinson elected to put the ship down on the ice cap. He ordered the crew to throw out their baggage. The line of dark objects helped him gauge his elevation as the unvarying surface of the ice resulted in poor depth perception. He brought it in for a wheels-up landing, and all hands managed to exit the plane under their own power. Lieutenant Fred Dallas, in the same flight as Stinson, had managed to find Bluey 8. Dallas and the base commander, the Norwegian polar explorer Bernt Blocken, took off to investigate the emergency radio transmission of a downed plane. They located my gal Sal and dropped emergency supplies, including a bottle of whiskey and, as a prank by Dallas, a case of condoms. In The Mighty Eighth, Gerald Astor quotes Dallas, I thought I was being funny. I was going to drop him condoms on the ice cap because he needs them. Stinson told me, you think that's funny, but those condoms saved my life, my whole damn crew's lives. We took the prop off an engine so we could run the generator and keep a battery going so we could operate a radio. But we needed an aerial, so we blew up these condoms, tied a wire to them, and put them up. We had enough condoms so that when they blew away, we could put up another aerial, and by that means we could communicate with Bluey 8. After finding my gal Sal, Blocken returned in a small plane, found a frozen lake to set down on, and skied the 12 miles to the maroon crew. He led them back to the lake and then, two and three at a time, flew them back to Bluey 8 over the next couple of days. Two other crash-landed crews from Stinson Flight were also rescued by Blocken. The 97th Bomb Group, the first B-17 group to have arrived in England, was the first to achieve operational readiness and was chosen for the first mission from England flown by American heavy bombers. Missions had been scheduled several times in the preceding days, only to be scrubbed because of poor weather. But on August 17, 1942, the weather was good enough to go ahead. Two flights of three planes flew diversions south, down the English Channel toward Dunkirk and Alderney. The main force of 12 B-17Es in two flights of six headed for the rail yard at Rouen, the capital of Normandy in northwest France. The heavies were escorted by four squadrons of RAF Spitfires. Brigadier General Ira Aker, commander of the 8th Bomber Command, rode as an observer in Yankee Doodle, the lead ship of the second flight. 
Visibility over Rouen was good, and 36,900 pounds of bombs were unloaded on the target from 23,000 feet. The ball turret gunner on Birmingham Blitzkrieg, Sergeant Kent West, was credited with shooting down a German ME-109, the first credited to a B-17 gunner. The escort fighters claimed another two, losing two themselves. No bombers were lost. The bombing was deemed reasonably accurate, with about half the bombs falling within the target area. Though the damage to the target was not enough to cause the enemy much concern, the mission was counted as a success and pointed the way for future operations. The pictures of Acre, after a quick change of uniform, posing in the waist door of Yankee Doodle, were visible proof of American confidence in daylight bombing. The gathered pressmen did not miss the name of the plane. Naming planes was not new. Among the RAF, during its long, lone stand against the Luftwaffe, it had become common. But the American Air Force would take the custom to new and often brazen heights. The wartime draft inducted large numbers of men to fill the needs of the military, and some number of them were gifted artists. Nose art on bombers, fighters, transport planes became, if not ubiquitous, exceedingly popular. Among the ground and air crews, nicknaming planes was an expression of individuality and familiarity. Ground crews especially took deep pride in ownership in the machines they tended, and it was not uncommon for a pilot who'd just brought home a damaged ship to be overheard apologizing to the crew chief, the enlisted man in charge of the maintenance and servicing of a plane, for damaging his aircraft. Two days after the mission to Rouen, the 97th attacked the Abbeville-Drucat airfield in France, again without loss. The next day they hit marshalling yards in Amiens, and all came home. But on the 21st they got a taste of things to come. Five Focke-Wulf F-190s concentrated their fire on Johnny Reb, lagging behind the formation. A 20mm cannon shell exploded against the windscreen, killing the co-pilot, 2nd Lieutenant Donald Walter, and burning the hands of the pilot, 2nd Lieutenant Richard Starks. The bombardier, 2nd Lieutenant E.T. Sconyers, took over control of the plane. With two engines damaged, Johnny Reb limped back across the channel to land at Horsham St. Faith, north of Norwich. The 97th continued to fly missions, attacking airfields and shipyards on the 24th, 27th, 28th, and 29th. On September 5th, the 301st Bomb Group joined the 97th on operational status, and the following day, the 92nd added its weight to a 54-plane mission. Forty-one of them attacked the aircraft factory at Molt, France, and the remainder flew a diversionary raid on the airfield at Saint-Omer. Two B-17s were lost over the targets to enemy fighters. This was the first time the Luftwaffe had mounted a concerted effort to intercept the bombers. In late 1942, 8th Air Force bomber crews were required to complete 25 missions before rotating off combat status. Extrapolating the roughly 4% loss rate on this mission, a bomber crew could expect a 1 in 4 chance of survival over 25 missions. 
I recognize that probability doesn't work this way, but in the minds of the young bomber crewmen, especially as the mission requirement was raised to 30 and then 35 and up to 50 for the 15th Air Force, this calculus would become gospel. Weather conditions resulted in only two more missions being launched during the rest of September. Now, on October 9th, the 93rd Bomb Group, the first operational B-24 group in the 8th Air Force, flew its first mission. Their experience was not gentle. Ten aircraft returned with combat damage, one with more than 200 holes. When he saw the state his plane was in, the crew chief, Master Sergeant Charles Chambers, forgot the propriety of rank and yelled, God damn it, Lieutenant, what the hell you been doing to my ship? As more bomber and fighter groups arrived and became operational, it seemed that the 8th Bomber Command was going to be able to engage the strategic bombing mission in earnest, but the needs of the broader war effort would intervene. In July, Allied Joint Command had come to the conclusion that an invasion of the continent was not realistic in 1942 or 1943. Instead, Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa, was planned for later that autumn. The two most seasoned bomb groups, the 97th and the 301st, including all their support personnel and joined by other operational bomber and fighter groups, were reassigned to the newly formed 12th Air Force in support of Operation Torch. Though they continued to fly missions from rainy, foggy England, they were soon to leave for the sun and sand of North Africa in the Mediterranean. <laughs> 